Saitama Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is Grok Science. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, super immunity. In addition, we'll be joined by Arnold Klan, who will talk about blue fire ethanol. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Sending speech, Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. How you doing, Charles? Pretty good. Been a while since I've seen you, in fact. It's almost like months or weeks or <laughs> years. I don't know. <laughs> Busy people, I'm sure. By the so, way, it's it's our eighth year doing the show, you know. Eighth year? Wow. <laughs> Isn't that longer than some marriages? <laughs> I, or maybe I two marriages? Marriages nowadays, I think probably we could have squeezed like five or six of them in. <laughs> Some people just believe in it so much that they had to do it over and over, huh? Well, it's, it's if at first you don't succeed. <laughs> Must be about the sanctity. But I think it's all about the science. Ah, the science. I was going to talk about immunity. Get that when you're a uh, political envoy to uh, another country? You mean a diplomatic type? So if I crash my car, I can't get sued? But of course our bodies have a lot of immunity. Well, I like to think so, but according to the latest science, that there could be instant immunity to anything. So this group of scientists led by... Mikhail Popkov at the Scripps Research Institute have devised a way to adapt, or shall I say retrofit, natural antibodies so that they can attack almost anything. And this would include viruses, cancer cells, you know, whatever else you have that could latch on with these uh, modified antibodies. Oh wow, so how are they able to get the specificity for these antibodies? They have this thing called adapter molecules, which induces the formation of a specific antibody, and then those are already effective to bond against a certain type of target. You know, ideally this would work instantly, it would confer you immunity, but it looks like it takes anywhere from a couple days to weeks for this system to work. So it's, of course, still in experimental stages, but potentially it could wipe out AIDS and flu if it works. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. So have they actually uh, tried some of these engineered antibodies against those diseases? Not yet, they're just reporting on the system. In theory, it should work, but it'll probably be a while before we find out how effective it really is. Well, I'm waiting because I'm sure I'm going to get all kinds of diseases with my hedonist lifestyle. I I thought all your diseases cancel each other out so you're actually perfectly healthy. You know, that's the other way of going about it. Who needs these adapter uh, antibodies? (laughs) Just make them fight each other, right? What doesn't kill me only makes me stronger. More powerful than you can possibly imagine. This comes from our very favorite journal, actually. You know, it's been so long since I've read from that journal, I felt there was something missing in my life. (laughs) I miss the science and the nature, but this one, just, I cannot live without. (laughs) It is, of course. The proceedings. Of the National. Academies. Of Sciences. PNAS. (laughs) 
Well, you know, that journal is so great, and it's been so long since we've heard from it. Here's another article from that illustrious journal. <laughs> it is really illustrious, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, is, it is so illustrious, especially when it's talking about left-handed amino acids. Left-handed? Wow, is that unnatural? <laughs> well, those are, in fact, the natural amino acids. You know, I, it'd be kind of cool to see if you can create an entire life form or life system on uh, right-handed amino acids. And that's actually the question. Why is it that life on Earth has favored left-handed amino acids? theory I heard was like cosmic rays were polarized so it induced one to be more favorable but in fact new researchers seem to suggest that whatever mechanism it is the left-handed amino acids were in fact more prevalent in our solar system to begin with and which is why life decided to use it so you mean amino acids found outside of earth as well Right. Well, so this is new research that was done by astrobiologists Daniel Glavin and Jason Dworkin at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in uh, Greenbelt, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And what they've been doing is they've been studying molecular deposits inside meteorites that have been found on Earth, which presumably have been around from the uh, formation of the early solar system. And what they found is by analyzing these meteorites that, in fact, the left amino acids predominate over the right-handed amino acids by sometimes as much as over 18% or so. Oh, wow. There was already an imbalance of left-handed amino acids in the early system, whereas you might just expect a 50-50 mixture of the two. Right. Since these uh, left-handed amino acids were prevalent to start with, life just used whatever abundant materials were around, and which is why we, we have left-handed amino acids in our bodies. Biochemist Sandra Borello of Arizona State University in Tempe, she suggests that, in fact, this does not close the debate on, on the left-handed amino acid controversy because in, a lot of these meteorites can become contaminated very quickly. The left-handed abundance you see might just be because of the abundance of left-handed amino acids in organisms on Earth. So I guess we should go out to space to find out what the real balance is out there, right? Yeah, well, we just need to uh, actually have a viable space program. <laughs> That's coming along, I think. There's hope. Let's just all go to Mars and live there. Seems like a friendly place. <laughs> a little rusty, though. Um, anyway, so very fascinating work. It was published in, again, our favorite journal. Oh, the Proceedings. Of the National. Academies. Of Sciences. PNAS. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Arnold Klan will join us to discuss blue fire ethanol. So stay tuned. to the Grok's Science Show. Well, the world's energy needs are far-reaching, and the search for alternative energy sources is spurring constant technical innovation. One of the most promising is ethanol from biomass, but the conversion process requires some technological innovation. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Mr. Arnold Klan. Mr. Klan is CEO of Blue Fire Ethanol, a company whose technology is being used to convert cellulose to ethanol, and he joins today to discuss this technology for a general audience. Mr. Klan, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you for having me, Charles. It's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really, certainly a very fascinating topic, especially for people interested in, uh, in alternative energies. I'm curious just exactly what is it that blue fire ethanol does? Well, as you say, we take cellulosic materials and convert those into ethanol, but it's, what's unique about our company and the approach we're taking is our technology. What we're doing at the present time is we use what's called a concentrated acid hydrolysis process, which sounds really fancy, but basically it isn't. 
We take, first of all, our feedstock from municipal solid waste, the material that we throw out you know, in our garbage and that, that's the organic fraction, which normally goes to a landfill. Well, instead of burying it in the ground, what we do is we take that material, we have a source segregation of that material, obviously, away from the inorganics, but then we apply sulfuric acid to the material through, with, again, the concentrated acid hydrolysis. And by doing that, it breaks the organic material down to its simple sugars. And just for your listening audience, cellulose is composed basically of three items. It's sugars, typically cellulose or, or hemicellulose. There's a glue that holds the sugar molecules together, which is called lignin. And then there's the minerals or whatever has been uptaken from uh, the growing cycle of that plant material or whether it be wood or whatever. And what we do is we basically break it down into those components. We break it down to the sugars and to the lignans and then to the inerts. And what we've pioneered is a way of separating the sugar molecules from the sulfuric acid so we can reuse the acid in the process so we don't have any waste of sulfuric acid. It's a closed system. And then those sugars are fundamentally fermented through very conventional yeast into ethanol, and then that ethanol is sold into the fuel marketplace. The separation needs to be done because it's the sugars that get converted into ethanol. That's correct. You, you want to make this as efficient process as possible. And so by being able to separate the sugars from the acids, of course, you reuse the acid in the process again and again and again. And just the sugars are extracted out to produce the ethanol through a fermentation process. Hmm. And has this technology been around a while? Well, the very first cellulose to ethanol plant was built in 1908 in Germany. So this technology has, you know, we, we think of this as a new discovery, new business that's being promoted over here in, say, the last four to five years. In fact, it's been around for over a century. The problem is it economically did not work except in wartime or severe economic times. And what we've been able to do is pioneer a way of making it economically feasible, even in today's times when you know oil is trading at $35 a barrel. So this is a fairly well-known technology. We just pioneered a way of making it economically feasible. Mm. Is it also the fact that uh, a lot of people have just gone to simpler things to extracting these sort of sugars for ethanol production? Well, I think, you know, when you look at the economic drivers and, and really what, what drives this business is the economics, you know, in Brazil, sugarcane was very prolific. They had huge land mass. They had the manpower to be able to harvest the sugarcane. So utilizing the sugars to produce ethanol in their marketplace dramatically changed the econometric model of that country. And they went from being held hostage, really, to importing over 80-some percent of their energy from outside their country to where today they're the economic engine that drives that whole Latin America, South America area. Same way here in the United States, where we don't have huge uh, sugar production, the farmers who had huge amounts of corn and they wanted to stabilize the value of that corn in terms of a revenue stream, they started producing ethanol from corn. So that is what really drove the ethanol market over the last century, basically, is really the food products that otherwise could be easily converted in, into the ethanol. Today, looking at the waste streams and being more efficient, and particularly you know, where the United States today is really in many respects held hostage to its oil imports and its energy imports, similar to Brazil was, 
by not only utilizing the corn in such a fashion so as not to disrupt the food prices, but then also to use the residues, the agricultural residues, you know, once the corn is harvested and having the corn stover or having wood waste or purpose-grown crops like uh, the Bush administration had been proposing and now the Obama administration is proposing. These all become alternative sources of energy that can offset the importation of oils here into the United States. And so uh, the cellulosic approach now has gained traction finally in government circles and seeing this as a viable alternative to producing ethanol and not taking away from the food crops. Hmm. What kinds of waste and how much waste can actually be processed in this manner? Well, there was a study done jointly between USDA and Department of Energy, which was called the Billion Ton Study, and this was accomplished about a year ago or a year and a half ago now. And they showed that across the United States, if we were to take a reasonable percentage, okay, not 100%, but say 50% of the available resources that are out there, and those resources happen to be any of the residue left over after we harvest our crops, so straws like wheat straw, rice straw, that type of material, corn, after the corn has been harvested, you have the corn stover that can be harvested. You have wood waste, wood debris. There's a tremendous push right now to get um, wood residues out of the forest, kind of the old growth trees that have died and the like, you know, to prevent the uh, massive forest fires that we've been seeing over the last few years, all that material, to be able to take our trash, the stuff that we bury in the ground, that, you know, that which society values the least. And by way of reference, if you look at that billion ton study, you could offset about 50% of the energy that this country uses from all sources for transportation fuels, whether it's natural gas or propane or gasoline or diesel fuel, uh, you could offset that by taking, if you will, the biomass and converting it into those fuels. So that's a huge offset for the whole country. And today, by way of reference, you know, we use about 150 billion gallons a year of gasoline. Well, that study suggested that about 70 to 75 billion of that could be produced just from the cellulosic fraction for that, ca- that transportation fuel. Hmm. This is, again, not new. During the, the heyday of the oil embargoes back in the late 70s, early 80s, the Carter administration had already kicked off quite a bit of studies and reviews in universities and through Tennessee Valley Authority and several of the other energy theory prior to being NREL and like to study ways of producing these types of fuels. But the approach was fairly broad-based. There was one end, if you want to look at it this way, we have the most simplistic approach. We just, for lack of a better term, we're acid in a bug, right? Mm-hmm. On the other side of that is you have what are called genetically modified organisms, enzymes, uh, genetically modified bacteria, funguses, and that to produce the ethanol also from the cellulose. And so there's a wide variety of technologies out there today, and there's about 15 to 18 companies based here in the United States that all have a different approach to taking cellulose and converting it into the ethanol to go into our transportation fuel mix. So there's a lot of companies out there today trying to do it, but each technology has a different price point of production. And so that's really what is trying to be ferreted out now is to say which technologies make the most sense to deploy and how are we going to deploy those. And so through government grants and through government support for the marketplace and the like, today you have all these companies in some form or another either building pilot plants to demonstrate that their technology actually is viable to companies like Blue Fire, who have already had three plants, two pilot plants and a semi commercial plant built, so we're ready to be in commercial production, and that's what we're doing is we're building commercial facilities today. 
the one of the um, the largest plant that we've had built so far was built over in Japan, in a place called Azumi's Japan. We licensed the technology to a Japanese company, and they were able to demonstrate that they could produce about 70 gallons of ethanol from one ton of waste. And by way of reference, if you have corn, if you were to take corn at a one ton level, you produce about 90 to 95 gallons. So you're not that far away. You're about 20% or so less yield per ton of feedstock than you get from corn. But the difference is, is you're using a waste material to produce that ethanol as opposed to a food stock. And so that's Again, what the government is focusing on is saying, okay, if we have these cellulosic waste, then we can produce these these alternative fuels. And in the case of the Japanese project from our basis, and when we scale these plants here to the United States, we're going to be producing the ethanol for about a dollar twenty a gallon, and that's a dollar twenty in comparison to what, say, fuel is gasoline as an alternative. So that's a pretty pretty low cost. And in corn today is about corn-based ethanol is running about a dollar fifty to dollar sixty a gallon to produce. It is significant, and some of the other technologies, they, their cost of production is a little bit higher, but, you know, it's a mix of what's going to be needed. We're, for this country to truly be in energy independent, and again, the government has put in place the 20 and 10 program, as it's known, by, uh, through the Department of Energy, in which they want to produce 36 billion gallons of alternative fuels by 2022, and that 36 billion gallons of alternative fuels represents how much oil we import today from foreign nations. And of course, we're importing this energy from countries that fundamentally are not necessarily our friends or don't, are downright don't like us. And so this is to get to the energy security portion of this. And I think this is a significant activity. It, it's an amazing experience to try to build out this much production capacity in such a short period of time. But there's definitely a need, and the technologies today exist to be able to meet this need. Do you see that there's perhaps an increased effort now with the uh, new administration that has just come in? I think the Obama administration, different and apart from the Bush administration, is going to be able to deploy quicker. Definitely with Obama's background, President Obama's background, coming from Illinois, which was a a major ethanol-producing state, he understands the dynamics better. His administration has definitely stated that they want to see a deeper impact of ethanol into the marketplace, particularly the cellulosic type that uh, Blue Fire and others are promoting. And if you look at the stimulus package, what's been in there is quite a bit of money put in there to make sure that these facilities get built. Are there any particular environmental benefits to using uh, cellulosic ethanol? Well, in, in fact, there are. Just ethanol uh, in and of itself reduces tailpipe emissions significantly. I mean, that was truthfully the first reason why they started blending ethanol into gasoline was less the energy security issue, but rather to reduce tailpipe emissions because when you blend ethanol in at about 10% blend or so, you do get major reductions in nitrous oxides. You get reductions in non-methane hydrocarbons coming out and CO drops, and, and there's a lot, of, you know, a lot of benefits from that standpoint. But when you look at the cellulosic side and, say, compare it to gasoline, if that's your base for emissions profiles, cellulosic ethanol on a life cycle basis is 85% less emissions, particularly greenhouse gases, than conventional gasoline is. And corn-based is about 30% less emissions than gasoline. So you really are helping the environment by utilizing these cellulosic ethanols. 
you mentioned there are some other uh, byproducts of the process, which are the lignans and the, the inerts that are in there. Are those actually uh, harmful to the environment, or can those be used for some other process? Well, that's the beauty of these processes. The lignin, in fact, once you separate it out from the sugars, is a very high-energy content fuel hmm. that can be burned in, a, in what's called a solid fuel boiler. And so in our plants, that makes up at a minimum 70% of the energy we need to process the sugars and the basic cellulose hmm. into the ethanol. So you're at least 70% within energy balance on our smallest facilities. And as we go up to our larger facilities, we're at 100% where that lignin, as we burn it, supplies all the steam and all the electricity we need to be able to produce the end product. So the lignin has a very high value. And again, you can burn that fuel very cleanly and very efficiently. The inerts typically end up going into the go back to the landfill for what's known as alternative daily cover. Here in the United States, at the end of each day, the landfills have to bury everything that's been put into the landfill for that day and, and put a cap over it. And so that's the alternative daily cover, if you will, they put on that. And those inerts are, again, materials that have been metabolized from the soils during the plant growing. Mm-hmm. So it, it's an all-encompassing solution. And, and again, by taking this material out of the landfill, you're obviously building airspace. And the other advantage of taking the material out of the landfill and not burying it is that landfills are the largest anthropogenic generators of methane gas in the world. Cows are right up there, but landfills to, you know, really are the biggest producers of methane gas. Well, methane gas, when it escapes and gets into the atmosphere, is 20 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So by us taking the material out of the landfill and processing it into ethanol, we are generating huge carbon credits because this is material that otherwise would not degrade and create that methane and then go into the environment. So in fact, we're cleaning up the environment not only on a short-term basis, but also you know, on a much longer-term basis by not having that material biodegrade in the landfill itself. And when you think about it from a societal basis is, we already have the infrastructure in place to collect this material every day. You know, your trash gets picked up wherever you live, you know, whether it's a once a week or twice a week situation. It's already efficiently delivered to the landfill. We put our facilities either inside the landfill or adjacent to existing landfills. So that material, once it goes into the landfill, gets moved to our facility. We process it into the ethanol. And then that ethanol goes back in the marketplace. And what's unique about our technology is we today have the only technology that can use this wider range of feedstock. You know, if you think about the waste that you throw away in, at your house, you have your green waste from cutting your lawn and trimming your bushes to having the paper waste, non-recyclable paper waste from your cereal boxes and the like to having food products. Well, we take that whole wide range and our process can handle, you know, that range of feedstock coming in to produce the ethanol. And so it's very efficient from that standpoint. Second advantage is landfills are typically located within the urban area. If you think about it, we throw our trash away, that trash may go 20, 30 miles to a landfill, gets buried. Well, for ethanol, the ethanol end market is the urban areas. So by us producing the fuel within the urban area by using the urban area waste, we avoid the logistics and the transportation network to be able to, that's required to move that material from the farming, you know, from say the Midwest where all the farms are located to the coastal areas or to the main metropolitan areas where the fuel is, is really going to be sold. Hmm. 
Uh, in our case, we've, we just recently, uh, as of December 12, 2008, received all the permits and authorities here in California to build our first facility. We were in licensing and permitting about 15 months to receive all those permits. And so we're going to be starting uh, construction here very shortly on that, that first facility. Our goal is to ramp up to build about five facilities a year. You know, and they typically have between 18 to 24-month gestation periods. So our goal over time is to, and really in that 2022 time frame that's been mandated by the U.S. government, we're proposing having about two to three billion gallons of, of our own production in place. The beauty of it, again, is we don't have to develop as much infrastructure in terms of feedstock in and product going out. It's really just building the industrial facility in the middle. There's two barriers right now. One of them is just the time it takes to go through the governmental process to achieve your receipt of your building permits to build these types of facilities. And then really the second barrier right now, which is unfortunately all of us are facing across all industries, is the financing mechanisms. Right now the credit markets are pretty difficult to raise the types of money you're going to need for these types of facilities. But the Obama administration has done, I think, a, a pretty good job right now of trying to free up the credit necessary or the liquidity within the credit markets to be able to finance these facilities. Well, it does look very promising. Uh, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious if you just have some final words on uh, this whole process. Well, I think I think it's uh, exciting. I mean, the, the, our process and, frankly, all of them that are out there, whether it's Viriniums or Range Fuels or Cascadas or, you know, there's, there's many companies that are promoting these technologies. These are the wave of the future for all of us. And when you look at how you integrate this type of energy into what we as consumers are trying to achieve, we're going to ultimately have lower-cost energy not only for our transportation fuels, but like in the case of ethanol, uh, it's really the on-ramp to the hydrogen highway because ethanol is a great conversion to, to hydrogen in fuel cells. So this is really something that's going to help us societally into the future. It's going to create more jobs. It's going to keep more jobs onshore, so to speak, and it's going to keep our money inside our country as opposed to exporting it to other countries. So as Blue Fire Ethanol, we're excited about promoting this type of fuels. You know, we work hand-in-hand uh, -hand with our competitors in some markets, and I think this is going to be good for America in general. It certainly is very promising. And, Mr. Klein, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today to talk about all of the uh, very fascinating developments going on at Blue Fire Ethanol. Thank you. And you were just listening to Mr. Arnold Klein discussing Blue Fire Ethanol. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you all right, well, here we go. It's time to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000, which is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic high energy or low burn. And so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as high energy or low burn and a little reason why. Mr. Klein, you ready to play the game? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Person number one, high energy or low burn, uh, media mogul Donald Trump. Uh, how about right in the middle of that, but probably high energy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number two is the Apple uh, founder, Steve Jobs. 
boy. You know, he is absolutely a mover and a shaker. It's just unfortunate right now with his health issues. But uh, I, I think that, you know, ultimately he's high energy. Uh, number three is Mr. Environmentalism himself, Al Gore. Low burn. Yeah, you know, he has to sometimes speed up to stop. <laughs> All right. Number four is a pop star, Britney Spears. Britney Spears. I'd say low burn. <laughs> Uh, okay, and finally, number five, it's the new president of the United States, Barack Obama. Definitely high energy. Definitely high energy. I, I mean, he's high energy plus. <laughs> Good thing for the economy. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, Mr. Klein, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about all the fascinating developments at Blue Fire Ethanol. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Charles. You have a great day. Right, God bless. Bye. All right, welcome back to Grok Science, and now here is our question of the week. It's the gay Michael Jackson. Hey, how's it going, Frank? So what you been drinking? Um, oh, well, I'm trying to get big and strong, just like all the strong, strong people, because they're strong, and it's got to be the, the spinach. It's not milk, then. Oh, milk, it does the body good, but I, I like spinach because it has a lot of iron and potassium and minerals to help you grow, plus all the, it's just the best food that there is. Oh, yeah, and the midichlorians. Thank you very much for having me on your show. When I come <laughs> back, I'm going to beat you up. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. You can also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.